1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
2: This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Cyphertrace, a MasterCard company. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, it's showtime, y'all. You're watching The Hash here on Coindesk TV. You're listening to us on The Coindesk Podcast Network. It's actually a milestone show. More about that at the end. I'm Zach Seward. We got Jen Sinassi and Adam Levine. Adam, what's going on? SEC stuff, Yeah.
0: Yes, indeed. In what threatened to be a rare moment of clarity from U.S. securities regulators, the SEC at the last minute removed what would have been the first formal definition of digital assets as they see them. The proposed definition had been included in a 2022 proposal to overhaul mandatory disclosures for hedge funds, but it was removed before passage with the agency noting, quote, the commission and staff are continuing to consider this term and are not adopting digital assets as part of this rule at this time, end quote. For longtime crypto observers, this is disappointing, but not exactly a shock. And even as the regulator has declined to define what they claim authority over, a U.S. judge has ordered that they respond to publicly traded exchange Coinbase's recent lawsuit asking for exactly that, clarity over what the rules actually are for the companies they're demanding compliance from. Jen, I'm going to kick this one over to you first. We've been talking about this type of thing for a long time. What what, what do you make of these developments?
1: We've been talking about this for a really, really long time. And just as we think we're going to get a little bit of clarity, we wind it back. And so I've told this story on The Hash before. I'm not going to get super into it, but I was at a conference talking to someone who's dealing with a regulator in the U.S. And they were telling me, you know, when they get permissions from the regulator, they say like, yes, here's a license to do this thing. But this is not to say that if you continue to do this thing, this will still give you permission in the future. The laws could change. The rules could change. And so it's all very confusing. And I, it seems like the SEC behind the scenes just can't make their mind up of what they want to say because they don't know what direction they want to go in. And if they say one thing and give us that little bit of clarity, you know, we may take the reins and run with it. And I, it doesn't really seem like they want that. It seems like we want to keep... The water is murky so that they can figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And as you can tell, I'm just very disheartened by it. Zach?
2: Yeah, it's just not so simple, right? There's various types of digital assets and just one overly prescriptive definition of what that may be would open up a whole can of worms for actually useful things that exist because of blockchain technology, right? Are stable coins a digital asset? Are NFTs a digital asset? Do Can they be defined in the same breath. And I think obviously the SEC may be grappling with this. Some some things just aren't as simple as that, right? So the fact that they are um, taking time at least to get this right is somewhat positive. But yeah, the SEC is trying to do all sorts of things where they're trying to expand the definition of an exchange that could severely hamper the growth of DeFi in the U.S. And it's really hard to figure out all the many things, all the many fronts on which this battle is being waged. You know, we have so much going on with the SEC now. We haven't gotten to the other part of this story, which is that, you know, they've been ordered to respond 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 to Coinbase within 10 days, right? They sort of initiated this fight with the Wells notice. Coinbase came back and said, hey, we're fighting you guys. They made this announcement at Consensus last week, by the way. And now a court is siding with Coinbase saying, hey, SEC, you got to get it together and, and respond within 10 days. So a lot going on in the regulatory battle that's brewing here in the U.S., And it's just a lot to unpack. So the fact that they're punting on this one, hey, maybe a good thing. Who knows, Jen?
1: Yeah, the courts are really pushing the SEC, it seems. When I was reading this story about the court giving the SEC 10 days to respond to Coinbase, it reminded me, I forget which bankruptcy case it was, but the SEC went in, tried to stop the bankruptcy proceedings from happening. And the court said, actually, no, you can't go ahead and do this. And so maybe the courts, the judges, are going to be the ones who push the SEC to actually give some, some clarity moving forward. Adam?
0: Yeah, so a couple of things here. Um, on the, uh, the story you're talking about where the bankruptcy judge pushed back, that was Voyager Digital. And it's important to note that Voyager Digital did not actually was not actually able to complete that deal with Binance.us in large part because of the regulatory pressure that was coming on. So that first judge did give them what they wanted in terms of saying, Hey, if you guys can't articulate the standard by which you're saying that these people may have committed crimes, then how can I hold up a bankruptcy that affects so many people when you don't even have a, a real position here? Right. So that worked with that judge. It was immediately appealed by the government put on hold and then the deal fell through because again, the level of hostility that's coming from U.S. regulators has been really significant. On the the Coinbase side of things, I think it's really interesting. I, I, I saw a take yesterday on Twitter from a gentleman named Metal Law, who uh, is a lawyer in the space, been operating in crypto for a while, and who I've seen a number of really interesting takes from. And his perspective was that this is the worst possible fight that the SEC could pick because Gensler, in sort of uh, shortly after being appointed, actually gave congressional testimony as the head of the SEC that said that they do not currently have the authority to regulate exchanges on the crypto side of things and that they would need new authorities to do that. So fast forward two years and now his perspective is very different. But the perspective from, uh, from, again, this Twitter user was that in order for an SEC chairman to go and actually give testimony under oath in front of Congress, there is a lot of paper trail that goes into vetting those decisions. And that to the extent that they, that he did say that under oath, there would have been a lot of sort of background that could be subpoenaed in this lawsuit um, as part of discovery or, you know, that could be exposed as part of discovery. Um, and as a result of that, it could be very, very embarrassing and then leave the, the SEC with a very difficult to explain position. Why did we think that we didn't have the authority here? And why do we think that we do have the authority now? And more importantly, what were the internal communications around both of those things? Because all of those could be made public. So my expectation remains that this is effectively like a shot across the bow that they do not intend to actually fight. And to the extent that they do, frankly, I'm really anxious to see it. I think we could get some interesting fireworks out of it. Zach?
2: Yeah, the Coinbase thing is going to be super interesting, right? They vowed from the from the get-go that they were going to fight this one and do so in a very public fashion. They seem to have stood by their word on that one, right? They said, hey, we got served with this Wells notice. We want to let you know. Hey, we're going to respond to this thing. They made a video with Brian Armstrong and Chief Legal Officer Paul Graywall. So they've been taking a very public tack in their fight against the SEC on this one hopefully to the benefit of the entire industry, right? Like we saw this a little bit with Ripple, right? Where it sort of realized that it could sort of be the flag bearer for advancing some of these conversations in its own fight with the SEC, which has dragged on for a number of years now. So Coinbase, I think, taking on this mantle as well is going to hopefully force the conversation in a way that might be beneficial to the crypto industry, right? And I think, you know, again, we're seeing the, the beginnings of a long, protracted fight hopefully out of which some clarity emerges because again if it's going to be regulation by enforcement maybe it's going to be clarity through the legal process rather than through the regulatory rulemaking process or the legislative process which I think is what people in the industry are wanting to see happen as it relates to kind of rather dealing with with that devil than with the SEC on the on the executive side so it is super fascinating to watch this play out with again the flag bearer of US crypto Coinbase going up against the US securities regulator for some definition as to what's what I don't know. Gary could win. Gary could win this ultimately. We'll see. Jen?
1: There's a quote I want to highlight uh, from one of the stories. It's from Anne-Marie Kelly. She's a partner at Mercury Strategies who was a longtime SEC official. She said, the SEC is a regulator that requires transparency from its registrants, but it is continuing to withhold regulatory clarity by not defining digital assets. She went on to say, any recognition of digital assets, uniqueness as a novel product, weakens their litigation stance that digital assets are securities and subject to the SEC securities laws. So it's interesting that she draws this back to the SEC stance that every Crypto asset is a security except for Bitcoin. So, a lot of things going on that this could point to. And as we always say on this show, time will tell. Let's move on to uh, North Carolina. All right. North Carolina's House of Representatives voted 118 to zero to pass an amended version of a bill that bans digital dollar payments to the state. Now, this would prevent the state's court system or agencies from accepting a Federal Reserve issued digital dollar. It also bans the state from participating in any CBDC pilots. Zach, what do you got?
2: Orwellian dystopias play well with, I guess, most of North Carolinians, right? If this is a unanimous thing that's saying, hey, CBDCs are bad, this is like, you know, this is the state creeping into your wallet, looking at what you're going to do. That all of a sudden is like a salient political talking point for more than one state legislature and state governor. So we're seeing this potentially ramp up into some sort of big election issue in 2024 should be advanced down that road, right? I think it's the boogeyman that a lot of people feel animated to act against, right? So CBDCs in that instance are being used effectively to advance legislation because there is some of that fear, some of that anxiety, some of that angst around the government having surveillance powers on your spending in a way that they don't typically have just yet. So that to me, I think is super fascinating to watch this emerge as a political issue. I'm glad as this piece mentioned that there's a carve out stable coins right i think initially this was going to be like all encompassing could have been real bad but i think some savvy staffers within various crypto lobbying firms said hey you know what you might want to carve this out and be a bit more specific in your language or else there's going to be some unintended consequences so that holds interesting development potentially a bit worrisome if it also expands to include stable coins for instance down the road but as of now it seems as though north carolina dodged that bullet in updating this language. I don't know, Adam, what do you think?
0: I mean, I think that this is indicative of kind of the the era that we're living through, which is one where we're, we're watching, you know, what limited credibility the most powerful institutions in the world today have. Really, it they retain it only with the people who benefit from it. And to the vast majority of the world that's out there who do not benefit from the exercises of power that we see, who do not benefit from the SEC's particular approach to this type of thing, or, or really, again, any of these national types of approaches, I think that that's what you're seeing. I think you're seeing people being incredibly concerned about what those in power do with the concentrations of power get. And if they're concerned about the level of power that folks have today, and folks like me, like I'm very, very, very concerned about this. I've been concerned about this for about a dozen years at this point. And my concern continues to grow, you know, with each passing day that we see more and more of this nonsense happen. When you have that as the current state of things, the idea that the state could then come in and be like, oh, hey, by the way, here's a much more Orwellian version of what we're doing, but don't worry, just trust us because this will be good and you trust us, right? Right. Like, the answer is no, we don't trust you. The vast majority of people do not. And the assumption, I think, there, there was for a very long time, at least with older generations, this presumption that, that these things were well-intentioned and being done on our behalf and for us, even if we didn't necessarily agree with them. And I think, again, over the last, you know, call it three, four years, we've really seen a large proportion of the population be like, you know what, actually, if you're telling me that you're the expert in this and that I need to do what you're saying I need to do and I shouldn't think about it too much, that's a warning sign to me that actually makes me less likely to do anything other than the thing you're asking me not to do. I appreciate that's a little convoluted, but hey, that's our world today, right? It is a convoluted world where the people who you expect to be able to trust are actually the people who are least trusted and ironically, people who you would never trust. Like I'd rather trust somebody random on the internet than somebody in government today. But that's just me, Jen.
1: I don't know about trusting random people on the internet, Adam. I a uh, <laughs> It is a low bar. Uh, I want to bring up that Now, the instant payment service that the Fed is launching is scheduled to, I think, launch. In July, um, you know, former Coinbase CTO Balaji Srinivasan implied that FedNow could be a precursor to a CBDC. And so I think it's interesting to see state government officials, you know, thinking about what could happen if this is a precursor to the CBDC as i was reading the story i reflected on last year i think it was last year now you know in canada when the canadian truckers were protesting and and the government issued sanctions against people who were involved in this in these protests and all of a sudden people didn't have access to their money people didn't think that the government would have so much control over their access to money and so i think when we're reading stories like this it's important to think about these scenarios that have highlighted these very real issues for people and governments at a state level or provincial level here in Canada. Zach, I'll give it to you for last words before we go to break.
2: It's early. You know, it's the scary idea of the thing that's actually animating action here, which I think is funny. Like we're not especially near to a digital dollar existing. And yet the idea of it is animating legislation such as this. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information.
1: And we are taking a hop over to Nigeria now where they've approved a national policy to create a blockchain-powered economy. A statement tweeted by the ministry said, The vision of the policy is to create a blockchain-powered economy that supports secure transactions, data sharing, and value exchange between people, businesses, and government, thereby enhancing innovation, trust, growth, and prosperity for all. That was a quote that is ending here. Zach, what do you make of this blockchain, not Bitcoin, that's going on down in Nigeria?
2: I don't know what it means. It was a very long (laughs) statement. I don't know what it means. I mean, sure, there's a lot of transparency benefits to logging things on blockchains. I don't know if they're going to use open networks or private or permissioned blockchains. There's a lot of details here that really change the inflection of this story. So I don't really know what to comment on or about because it it is rather neutral as a statement, right? It's sort of like, hey, we love blockchain. It's great. Technology, yay. But like what that means in practice, I think is like very important for how we go about talking about this. And those details don't appear to be there yet based on the reporting and based on this statement. So I don't know. I'm reserving judgment on this. It could go any number of ways. Obviously, Nigeria has been an early, I guess, people in Nigeria, more specifically, have been early adopters of Bitcoin technology specifically. Ton of peer-to-peer Bitcoin trading was going on there on prominent peer-to-peer marketplaces before they shut down. Whether or not, you know, again, this is open and permissionless, sort of the way crypto is designed to be, or if it's permissioned, gated, private, the way a lot of enterprise blockchain projects have been historically, and a lot of CBDC projects will be going forward. That's like really what it comes down to. So I have no idea. This is a lot of empty talk, honestly, in my opinion, but I'll I'll toss it back to you.
1: Yeah. I think it's important to look at what's going on in Nigeria. And Zach, you alluded to it a little bit. There's been a big push there for citizens to adopt the CBDC. There's a cash shortage. People are lining up at ATMs. They can't get money out of the banks. This is part of the push towards getting people to adopt the CBDC, but also a result of a redesign of the currency that took place, I believe, last year. I wonder if this now push towards blockchain technology could be the government maybe trying to educate people on on the technology behind CBDCs. It doesn't really, it's not really making sense to me, Zach. Like you said, as to you know why they're saying what they're saying and why it's so broad. And so my mind immediately goes to you know could this be another way to push the CBDC towards Nigerians? There was an interesting stat in some of my research this morning. Under one percent of Nigerians have tried to use the CBDC, and that compared to more than fifty percent of people in Nigeria who have used crypto. So I wonder about some of the motivations behind the Nigerian government on this, Adam.
0: Yeah, um, I think I can shed some light on this, although I have no proof behind any of it. So when you're talking about these types of projects and you're talking about a place like Nigeria, you know, a lot of people like to confuse the technology as being the innovation when really it's what the technology enables. What the technology enables when you're talking about decentralization is the ability to have a currency whose value is not determined by the government under whose, you know, authority you live. And so if you want to look at What's the difference between Bitcoin and the central bank digital currency that they've offered? Well, one is that the central bank digital currency is being strongly encouraged by a government that is not broadly trusted, which, as we discussed in the last segment, is kind of a dynamic that's going on right now. And secondly, like the question of once you've got that there, like what's the point? Right. So so the ambiguity in this allows them to say, hey, we're using blockchain technology just like Bitcoin without defining a lot of the things that would really tell you whether it actually solves the problem of, hey, I don't trust my government to manage the money, which is really kind of the underlying thing here. So you can kind of think about this, drawing back to my famous horse analogies, you can kind of think about this like, Traditional government money is a horse-drawn carriage, you know, a fully decentralized blockchain that can't have its value messed with by by the government under whom you live. That's something that's more like a car. And the governments, because they don't actually want people to drive cars, have named the horse that's driving their buggy engine, right? And so the horse-drawn cart remains a horse-drawn cart, has all the problems with horse-drawn carts. But now we can say, oh, well, it's being driven by engine. And we all know that engines only go in cars and things that are advanced technology. That's essentially what we're looking at here. So again, like it's not surprising to me they're playing this game. They are stuck in an unenviable position, which is that to the extent that they actually give up power over their money is to the extent that probably they give up power. Like it's going to be really hard to maintain power in a political sense if you no longer have the ability to spend whatever money you want by effectively, you know, indirectly taxing your citizens by inflating the value of your currency. And ultimately that's what all of these governments want to do. That's why they want to retain control because lacking that they have to actually tax us or they have to actually, you know, cut spending so that they can afford whatever it is that they need to spend. And that right now, again, to the current era of modern government is a toxic idea that means the end of a lot of things that they would really rather keep doing. So I remain hopeful that this dynamic continues. And I think that it's one of the reasons why central bank digital currencies over the medium term don't really represent much of a threat at all, because although they dress themselves up in the trappings of what's attractive about something like Bitcoin, they don't actually have that. And that will be proven over and over and over again. Back to you, Jen.
1: I think it's time to move on to the next story. But Adam, I just want to say before we go there, do you come up with these horse analogies on the spot? Because they're always so good and spot on. I feel like you practice them at home.
0: Uh, no, I do come up with them on the spot, although I will admit to sometimes borrowing from my good friend, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, who has made some of these in the past. Not that one, though. The horse named Engine, that one's mine. That was nice.
2: Just off screen, Adam actually has a horse metaphor whiteboard. So uh just so you guys know, you just can't see it. Don't tell anybody, oh. Zach. Don't tell anybody. It's a sauce. <laughs> secret sauce. All right, let's change gears. Let's talk... Talk about criminal stuff. So we've been following this story for a while. There was an OpenSea executive named Nate Chastain. He was accused of insider trading in one of the first NFT insider trading cases in crypto history. Now he has been convicted on wire fraud and money laundering charges. And faces up to 40 years in prison, all for trading something like $50,000 worth of NFTs. A wild one, one we've talked about in the past, but one that is certainly worth revisiting now. Lawyers, of course, maintained that he was going to be exonerated when the facts were brought to light. That did not come to pass. The lawyers did not get that one right. Their client now facing 40 years behind
0: bars. Let's talk about it. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's pretty bad (laughs) in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, Again, like the part that's good about this is that when this was originally surfaced as a story, the conversation was not about wire fraud or money laundering. It was very clearly targeted at this idea of insider trading, which was a weird direction to take it because the concept of insider trading makes an assumption that something is a security. And that's something that, again, we're still having arguments and there's no definition about when it comes to actual fungible tokens, much less non-fungible tokens, where, again, like you can certainly create a security that is a non-fungible token, but the collectible side of it, there's no implicit connection between that unless we're also saying that baseball cards and things like that are suddenly securities, which I think nobody is claiming. Now, the, the actual case, I think, is a perfect example of don't get greedy, you know, like, what the heck were you doing? Like, you're an executive at a very successful company that has a great trajectory, you probably have stock options, like, he, he didn't need to do this. This was perceived as easy money where there was no regulation around it. And clearly, that was wrong. Uh, so I think that that side of it's very true and a good lesson for everybody who works in the industry is, to, you know, wherever you are in it is that go out of your way to do the right thing, because you never know when something that you think is perfectly fine, whether you thought it was fine or not, will wind up being a problem. And then, of course, the other thing is that the idea that this could result in 40 years of jail time. When we're looking at a banking system and we're looking at a monetary policy system that has so much corruption in it, has so many problems just implicit from looking at it again, like at least from what we can visibly see, it is quite apparent. Uh, Like that strikes me as being another sort of like Ross Ulbricht type example, right? Like uh, the guy, uh, you know, who created the Silk Road was convicted of that currently serving two double life sentences or, or a double life sentence. The, the punishment does not fit the crime. And it strikes me that you could have resolved this issue by finding the guy a lot of money. But anyways, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. Zach, over to you.
2: Yeah, I got to get Jen on the board here. But yeah, very salient points brought up uh, by Adam. Jen, what do you think?
0: I think all this
1: for $50,000. I think people in the industry should be looking at this. You know, there's so many tokens that are part of projects, even if they're utility tokens, there's so many NFTs that are launched as part of projects. And I think everyone should be looking at this and ingraining in their brain that they should be transparent and always disclose, disclose disclose because this is going to be precedent setting. I think we're going to look back at this case and look at what happened here. And it's going to set some precedent in this industry for how people interact with the tokens at the places they work, whether they are fungible or non-fungible. And so just do the right thing. I want to hammer that home. Zach?
2: Yeah. A lot of example setting to be had uh, in the crypto space. And funny that when this first happened, all the SBF stuff had yet to transpire. Now here we are. Mm Anyway. All right. Shutting it down for the day. I mentioned that this was a milestone episode. This is the 300th episode of The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We do big numbers on the podcast network. Thanks to you. Thank you so much for being here and listening to us. <laughs> we all go. Right, that's it for the show. I'm Zach. There's Jen. There's Adam. Bye now. Have a great You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.
0: Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G
1: reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, go. or attending one live, go! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at Cox.com internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.